0: When I was a youth pastor, uh, as youth group, we would get together, number of guys or whoever wanted to, and play board games together. And one of the board games that would frequently be played, and actually it got played so much that we made a giant board of it, uh, the kind of, and put it on a table. And it was the kind of table or the size of a table that you would experience if you go to a restaurant and you're sitting at a booth. That size table, that's how big this game was. And the game that we did this with was a game called Risk. And, uh, and and it was fun, man. We were we would hang out for hours and hours. There was one time that the police showed up because we had the door open because when you get a bunch of guys in a room, let's just say late in the evening, it doesn't always smell the greatest. <laughs> so the cops are coming in wondering why the doors were open of our youth uh, building. And, uh, and so we were just having a blast playing Risk. And one of the things that I would get accused of every single time I would get accused of orchestrating outcomes. You know, I would get people to do what I would want them to do and 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 move in directions I would want them to move so that my plan gets enacted. Frequently accused of that kind of thing. Which to some extent I rather enjoyed, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, and it's interesting when we when we look at that idea of what does it mean to orchestrate events to move in a certain direction when i think of the story arc of the bible you know the way that god links everything together that he's doing things hundreds of years in advance in order to be able to make something come about and putting all the different pieces together just orchestrating everything it displays how he has a plan not only does he have a plan, but he has an ability, he has the ability to see that plan come to fruition, see that plan actually get worked out, and that nothing is able to alter his plan. That's amazing to me. That, he, that he, he has this overarching story, plan, strategy of how he's going to draw people back to himself The really neat thing about that for me is this, that God's plans cannot be defeated, which means you can count on God's plans even for you. God's plans cannot be defeated, including his plans for you. So here's one of the plans that I saw in the scriptures that I thought that you would appreciate. Uh, If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2 I'm going to be reading verses 1 and 2 but we're going to be using uh, this section of scripture as sort of what you would call an anchor passage um, that there's and by that what I mean is is that there's a story that's going on here but there's so many other layers that we're going to move around in the scriptures in order to be able to show you how this story comes about and how it's part of God's plan. Matthew chapter 2, if you do not know where the book of Matthew is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents, people work really hard to put it there, don't be ashamed to use it. Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to be reading verses 1 and 2, here's what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and came to worship him. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, that we get to see that you are the master architect, that your plan for your world, for your creation, and, and being able to come to the knowledge of uh, salvation through your son has been enacted, Lord, all the way back into Genesis. And we get to see it play forward as we look into this manger scene uh, of, of you coming to earth in the form of a baby. And then, Lord, later as we see the Magi come and we see a fruition of things here as well, Lord, you're just so good, creative. And when we have our eyes open to seeing how you orchestrate, um, and Lord, we can't help but marvel at your goodness and, and how amazing you are. And Lord, thank you that that then also gives us confidence in knowing that whatever plans you have in our lives, you will see come to that amazing end, right? Like you who begins a good work in us will see it to completion. Thank you so much, Lord. Amen. So we we have the story of the Magi, uh, and the Magi is one of the ways we can possibly see God's orchestration, his strategies take place. And so there's several theories about who these Magi are, and I think it's important that we recognize that that what we even offer you today is something I want you to search the scriptures on and uh, and recognize that this is probably the strongest theory but it is not the only theory about the Magi. But I do want to share with you what this one is and, and recognize that this is one of those things within the Christmas story or within the New Testament that we kind of hold with an open hand. We say, you know what, this is likely, but we don't know for sure, and we won't know for sure some of the details of it until we get onto the other side of heaven, right? Like, like this is one of those things where um, this isn't a salvation issue, but it's still an important thing to study and to see if we can come to a greater understanding on. So let's talk about this. What is a Magi? So a Magi, this is, this is a, a strange word to us, right? Because we don't actually have an English word for this. Uh, and so Magi is where we get words like magic. Uh, magi is where, or majestic, and all of these kinds of things. Like there's this, um, there's this word that we've adopted from another language and, and, and just used within our English language. But the first mention of Magi is actually in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 3 and verse 13. Here's what it says. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle in the middle gate. Now I am going to pronounce these, probably just butcher these names, but you'll see. Nergal Saazir of Samgar, Nabu sa of the Rabsaris. Rab- this is from the ESV if you're following along. Nergal saw Azir the Rabmag. The word Rabmag there is the word that I want you to catch, with all the rest of the officers and and the, of the king of Babylon. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Rab Nergal saw Azir the Rabmag, and all the chief officers of the king. Of Babylon. Now, there's a lot of names in there, and and I I understand that there's some difficulty in understanding what these names mean because all names in this time have meaning. There's attachment to these names. But specifically, now, if you're using like NIV or some of these other translations, you'll probably see uh, as it relates to Nergal Sa Azir. Uh, the Rabmag in the ESV, in the Amplified, in many translations, in your NIV, it'll say "high official." That's all it'll say. It'll say "high official," and the reason behind that is that because the it's only fairly recently that we've come to be able to understand the deeper meaning of what's actually taking place in that particular word or name or uh, title. Uh, "Rabmag" um, is a word that the original translators. We're not sure of its meaning. So it was just simply transliterated, meaning that all we did was we took the original Hebrew and gave it the English spelling, right? To to sound that out, to give it the English spelling. And so we gave it the English letters. And that being said, it has since now been correctly translated as, are you ready? Chief Magi. Chief Magi, like the number one Magi or magus, is another way to say it. The best translation authorities say that magus, and in its, in its singular form is magi, but uh, of magus comes from the old Persian word mag or mog, meaning priest or great one. It means that the name of this guy, Nergal Shah Azir, he was the Rabmag mag or the chief magus of the Babylonians in 586 B.C when they were conquering Jerusalem now the magi of the of Babylon were you could say they were pagan heathen the word heathen has so much connotations to it that I hesitate to use it sometimes but they were certainly pagan Uh, they were pagan physicians priests astrologers astrologers, learned men these were the wise men of the nation they were the advisors to the king they were also sorcerers they were uh, some translations would call them wizards they were the magi and it's said that from them dis, there was this line of people that came in this descendants of evil you could say right so there's a guy for example by the name of elemas in acts chapter 13 and elemas is this guy who is attempting to thwart uh, paul and barnabas's efforts to well preach the gospel Acts chapter 13, verse 6 to 8 says this. And this is talking about Paul and Barnabas. They traveled through the whole island and they came to Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. That's interesting to me. He's a Jewish sorcerer. He's a a magi, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, when the proconsul is, is sort of, if you think of it as kind of a governor over the land, he was an intelligent man uh, and he sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So that's interesting so here you have this jewish guy right so we know we know that he understands who the one true god is he's a jewish man and there's no way that he was going to be able to grow up and not know who the one true god is but he elects to be this false prophet he and and becomes this magi and wants to turn somebody away from accepting the faith that would be a descendant of evil in this magi lying right or or these people that would try to usurp whatever it is that god was doing that's kind of what they are they were advisors they were priests they were physicians they were sorcerers they, they wore a lot of different hats and so when we're looking in our story here if we're looking at the magi who come to visit jesus where did these guys come from now some translations say from the orient um some translations, and especially actually when you think of, there, there's this hymn, this Christmas hymn um, or carol, and it's called We Three Kings, right? And it's the first line is, we three kings of Orient are. And, and, and so we have this idea or this connotation with the term Orient that isn't actually present within the text. The word uh, so we'll, we'll dive into it, but Magi from the East, Matthew chapter 2 verse 1, and the English word actually confuses saying the English word for us in terms of Orient, we're thinking Asia, right? Like we're thinking East China, we're thinking like Japan, or you know, we're, we're going all the way out that way. But Orient actually just means East. And so for Matthew to be writing that the Magi came from the East, He's not actually saying that they're coming from Asia uh, in terms of how we understand Asia now. It's actually more likely that they were from Persia, Arabia, or Babylonia. Uh, Babylonia is the the capital city, of course, of uh, Babylon. Some church fathers, like Clement of Alexandra, he preferred Persia. And the reason he preferred Persia is because there was this... Um, there was this religion within Persia that was called Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism had a massive uh, emphasis on studying the stars, star mapping, all those kinds of things. Um, There were forefathers like Justin, uh, partially based on on the typical sources uh, that you would find in this day. Um, He preferred Arabia, because of the spices that are mentioned in terms of the gifts that are given to Jesus. But Babylonia is probably one of our greatest candidates, Babylonia and Persia. And and the reason I say that in terms of their origin is is that they would have encountered Israel's scriptures during the exile, during the captivity that happened hundreds of years earlier. here's what I mean. There's this character that we're familiar with in terms of story, Daniel and the lion's den. Many people have heard that story, many people have seen cartoons or um, have had that story explained to them. Daniel is a character within the text who um, had a pretty prominent place within Old Testament, and most certainly as it relates to literature regarding Jesus or the Messiah. Jeremiah spoke to the Jews in Judah. right? So if you remember from other series that we've done, uh, Judah is the southern kingdom. Uh, When Israel was divided into two, you have Judah, the southern kingdom, and you have uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, which contained 10 of the tribes. Judah was two of the tribes. So Jeremiah spoke to Judah, and Ezekiel was God's prophet to the Jews that were in captivity within Babylon. Daniel, had a unique role in that he served within the um, courts of the king. He, was in, he served within the rule of the pagan kings who ruled the world. Now the book of Daniel mentions four pagan kings that Daniel served under. And, and he, in terms of the kings that he served under, he served under Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. He served under Belshazzar, who was also king of Babylon. He served under darius king of persia and sirius Assyrus, also king of persia and in this respect he's kind of like joseph in that uh, he served as the prime minister of egypt when a nation was at the height of his power right so J- joseph served as the prime minister of egypt when egypt was at the height of his power daniel had the same kind of role he had this governance that he was able to offer but not just that Daniel was actually made chief advisor. He was the chief magi in the text. In the book of Daniel, chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has this dream. And when he wakes, he's deeply troubled by the dream and he can't recall uh, all the details of it. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls his wise men and demands that they be able to interpret his dream for them. But they can't. So Nebuchadnezzar orders that they be killed. Seems like a dramatic thing, right? Except that this is what they claim they can do. And to the lie then to the king is to commit sort of an act of treason. And so then the punishment nowadays, we would say that's pretty extreme, but in that day, the punishment fit the crime. So Nebuchadnezzar orders that they be killed. And when Daniel hears this, he promises the king that he will tell them, tell him his dream and interpret it for him. So. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. It troubles him deeply. He can't remember the details of it. His advisors can't help him. Daniel comes along and he says, listen, I'm going to tell you what your dream is without you telling me, and I'm then going to interpret it for you. And this is the event. And and so, of course, he does this. and, And this is the event in terms of Daniel, what happens in Daniel's life that elevates Daniel to being chief magi, chief advisor. The fifth chapter of the book of Daniel tells how he interpreted the handwriting on the wall during the rule of King Belshazzar. I don't know if you recall this story, but there is this story of where uh, the hand of God actually appears in the throne room and writes on the wall. And it's like basically your days are numbered is what it's saying. Chapter six contains the famous story of how Daniel emerged unscathed after being thrown into the lion's den during the reign of King Darius. He was cast into the lion's den because some of the magi or wise men were jealous that the king Darius, that King Darius had appointed Daniel, a Jewish man, to be chief among them. Rab Maj, or chief magi. Daniel chapter nine, God gives Daniel a dream that states exactly how many years will pass. Are you ready? because some people know this and some people don't, but exactly how many years will pass between Daniel's day and the death of the Messiah, the actual death of the Messiah. And so knowing the approximate time of Messiah's birth, the wise men in our story would have actually known to be watching for the birth of the Messiah. See, under Daniel, if Daniel is chief advisor, chief magi, then all other magi would be required to follow through with whatever it is that Daniel is going to be instructing them in. And Daniel had the word of God. Now, of course, uh, Daniel was given these prophecies, and so he's going to share these prophecies, talking um, likely anyway to the other magi. And so, for example, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And so the Magi would have likely, right, so here's the theory, the Magi would have likely continued reading the scriptures of the Old Testament because of the influence of Daniel in their lives. And they would know then, okay, this Messiah is to come out of Bethlehem. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, this is Balaam. Balaam is uh, basically hired by Balak to come and curse israel but because balaam was uh was a priest of the lord most high uh, and yes he had character issues that's absolute he was not able to actually curse uh israel and so instead he he has these oracles or these prophecies over israel and in the fourth one he says i see him but not now i behold him but not near Uh, listen to this a star will come up out of jacob a scepter will rise out of israel He will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of all the people of Sheth. And so the theory goes that these magi would have understood the prophecies that are given to them by somebody like Daniel um, that they would then go over and understand and and then continue to read about, you know, even after Daniel. And then in doing so, we are able to then understand how they came to know that this was the Messiah that was going to be born in Bethlehem. How they came to know that they needed to follow this star. Haven't you ever asked the question, what sources were they studying in order to be able to know what was going on? And this is the theory. And so you got to understand that this is important, okay? See, so we are talking like 700 years before, or post, like more than 700 years before the birth of Jesus, certainly before the death of Jesus, there's this prophecy and God is orchestrating this in such a way that all these years later these Gentile magi will recognize that the Son of God the King of the Jews is born first to the Jews then to the Gentiles is the language that Jesus uses when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, when he talks about salvation. It's first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Jesus came as a Jewish baby to the Jews and then the Gentiles came. And this is the pattern that we see throughout scripture. Now, not only did they have these prophecies that they would have been following and studying the stars, seeing this enormous uh, star that's dedicated Right. This star that comes out of Judah that they then follow to come over to Bethlehem. They then also bring gifts with them. And, and then there's significance to these gifts. There's three gifts. They had spiritual meaning. The first gift was the gift of gold. And the gift of gold represents Jesus's kingship. Uh, Jesus was prophesied as a coming king. Right. So Isaiah chapter six, verse, sorry, chapter nine, verse six to seven we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be one called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forever. Jesus is described here as, from the prophet Isaiah, as a king, right? He's he's a prince, he's a king, He's, he's the prince of peace, but he has this government that he presides over as ruler, as king, that will have no end. It is an everlasting kingdom. And so this gold is the kind of gift that you would offer the king the second gift that we see here is frankincense and frankincense is a type of incense i I remember years ago many many years ago it it was a big fad that people would burn incense in their homes just because of the smell and they appreciated the smell and that kind of stuff Uh, there were many that were trying to suggest that maybe this incense had some kind of curative properties you know not all that different than some um, some other things that come up in our day and age. But frankincense was actually um, this resin type of thing that was imported from Arabia, but also grown in the land of Israel. It was one of the ingredients in the perfume of the sanctuary, actually. And it was used in an accompaniment to a meat offering. So when it was burned, it was used in, in the worship practices and so when burnt it would emitted this fragrant odor and the incense became a symbol listen of the divine name and an emblem of prayer this is from easton's bible dictionary and so what frankincense is frankincense is an incense and it was used in worship and in using it in worship it it ascribed deity to the one that was being worshiped the magi's incense told of jesus's divinity for burning incense was regarded as an act of worship to Almighty God. And so therefore, this little child uh, sitting in the lap of his mother was worshipped as Lord of Lords. Revelation nineteen sixteen. The incense also tells us of his sacrifice. Since incense is used in temple sacrifices, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 says, Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering. And a sacrifice, listen, a sacrifice to God for a sweet swelling, uh, swelling. <laughs> sweet smelling aroma. A sweet smelling aroma. And then we have myrrh. Myrrh is this gum, it's a viscid uh, white liquid that flows from a tree resembling the um, acacia. And it's found in Africa, but it's also found in Arabia. And again, we read that in Easton's Bible Dictionary as well. Now, myrrh was used, if you can imagine this, myrrh was actually used as part of the embalming practices. That's Smith's Bible Dictionary. In Mark chapter 15, verse 43, we read that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for Jesus' body. And in verse 46, we read this. He says, then he brought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled the stone against the door of the tomb. And then in the next chapter, Mark chapter 16 verse 1, he says, now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Now the spices that they were talking about, among them would have been myrrh. And myrrh tells of Jesus's suffering, of his death, of his burial these gifts are significant because at the time that the um, magi encountered jesus they brought him gifts that symbolized his kingship his divinity and his sacrifice they understood exactly what was going on and so they had this encounter with jesus now we have viewed the gifts of the magi but i want to point out that there's this encounter um with the savior first of all we we learn that the magi stood in the presence of jesus right like we read that they fell down and they worshiped him like let's understand this this is not a small thing the magi didn't just simply understand jesus to be king of the jews they worshiped him which means that they recognized him to be exactly who the prophecies said he was going to be whenever we come to realize our sinfulness and his sinlessness we too then fall down and worship him and in his presence in the presence of the of the gold we come to realize that jesus is a holy and righteous king this gift of gold represents that it shows us that and so they have this encounter that they are with this holy righteous king that they then lay down and they worship As in the presentation of the frankincense, we recognize that Jesus' great sacrifice, which is made when he laid down his life on the cross. And we got to... When we encounter Jesus, we reciprocate that. In other words, he died for me, I will live for him. In the dying to self, I will offer my life as a sacrifice to Jesus, right? Like Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, right? Like, uh, do not be... uh, Sorry... Uh, Do not follow the customs and patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is your good and perfect um, gift. Some people, uh, some translations say, this is your spiritual act of worship, your sacrifice. We live our lives towards him, becoming more like him. I die to me and I live for him in terms of encountering Jesus in the presentation of the myrrh, we come to realize that just as Jesus was prepared for the burial place of the tomb our sins are buried with him right like and so when we identify with Christ in our baptism for example we when we go under the water we we die with him we're buried with him when we come out of the water we're raised to new life in him we got to die to self we got to die to self and make sure that, that move that we move away from sinful desires. Matthew chapter 2 verse 12 tells us what an encounter with the savior will do for us ultimately. Matthew chapter 2 verse 12 says this, talking about the magi. They departed for their own country another way. They departed for their own country another way. They left a different way than how they came. Now I get it. There can be a bit of a stretch here, but there's something to that when you encounter Jesus. Like when we encounter Jesus, we got to leave a different way than when we came. Forever changed by our experience. So these magi, the theory goes like this. Daniel becomes chief magi in Persia, in the Persian empire, which is the empire that came after Babylon. And in becoming chief Magi, exposes all the other Magi that were ever to come after him to the Hebrew Scriptures. The Hebrew Scriptures then are understood and studied in the East. And, and, and people are looking for the birth of this Messiah, the King of kings, the King of the Jews who's marked by the star in the sky that they then also look for. And they understood a rough timing of when this was to take place because they, they knew, based on Daniel's vision from God when the Messiah was going to be killed. And so they were able to extrapolate backwards and keep their eyes attuned and watch. And when they see the star, they journey to meet the King of Kings. And when they meet the King of Kings, they're changed. And they go back home to their home country a different way. So do we, when you meet the King of Kings, and you have that personal encounter with jesus we're changed we no longer live for self we live for him we no longer live for self we serve and we move ourselves away from sinful desires and chase after him it's an amazing thing and all of this all of this is part of god's story arc of orchestrating events to take place in order to showcase His salvation, His glory, to have His name venerated, lifted high. I think it's a cool thing to see how there is this incredibly strong probability of these magi studying the works that Daniel exposed them to Who then look for the king wise men still look for the king be wise let's pray lord i thank you so much for our time together here and i pray lord that as we look into your word as we study as we grow in our understanding that our encounters with you would go deeper and and richer lord that we would choose you on a daily basis and that we would Lord, we would wake up in the morning and say, Lord, what are you up to today and where can I fit in? That we would be a people who die to self regularly and live for you and make your name known. In your holy name I pray, Lord. Amen.